Nearly 200 people killed and an imminent terrorist threat remains. The lead starts right now. Top U.S. officials now fearing there could be more attacks at the Kabul airport with the clock ticking down to get Americans and Afghan allies out of Afghanistan. Then, masking up, a circuit court judge rules against the governor of Florida and lets schools require masks if they want. Plus, embattled California Governor Gavin Newsom facing a recall battle. Coming up, what may give us a clue about how the recall election will go? Welcome to The Lead, everyone. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today in our world lead, President Biden and his team bracing for the possibility of another terrorist attack after 13 U.S. service members and more than 170 Afghans were killed by a suicide bomber outside Kabul's airport yesterday. Eleven Marines, one sailor, and one soldier were among the service members killed. The military is beginning to pack up what's called the retrograde process, where not just service members, but their equipment are shipping out. Still, the evacuation mission is continuing. In the past 24 hours, nearly 13,000 people were evacuated by the U.S. and allies, more than 300 of them American citizens. In the past 13 days, the U.S. has evacuated a total of 105,000 people. Today, the Pentagon said nearly 7,000 Afghan refugees have arrived in the U.S. and are undergoing processing. This afternoon, the White House reiterated its commitment to evacuating every American by President Biden's deadline of August 31st. But sources involved with rescue and evacuations tell CNN that it's clear that some Americans, possibly some U.S. citizens, certainly lawful permanent residents of the U.S., who want to get out, will almost certainly not be able to by then. To say nothing of the thousands of Afghan allies, the special immigrant visa or SIV applicants, who will be left behind. Of that latter group, the Biden administration is not denying reports that U.S. officials in Kabul gave the Taliban, whom they say are helping with evacuation efforts, lists of those whom the U.S. wanted to fly out, including the SIV applicants, who are terrified that the Taliban will kill them for having worked with Americans. One defense official told Politico, quote, they just put all those Afghans on a kill list. Let's get straight to CNN's Clarissa Ward live in Qatar. She was in Afghanistan just a few days ago. And Clarissa, the evacuation efforts were incredibly complicated before the terrorist attack. Now it's impossible to describe just how challenging this has become. Hugely challenging, Jake, because the threat is still very real of other potential attacks from ISIS-K or ISIS-Khorasan, as the group is known. Uh, we know that the evacuations have been continuing, regardless of the threat, which is pretty extraordinary. But we're also seeing far smaller crowds, much fewer Afghans willing to come out into the streets today and risk life and limb to try to get into that airport. And I want to warn our viewers now, Jake, that some of the images they're going to see in this report are very disturbing. 24 hours after the deadly terrorist attack in Kabul, a terrifying warning about the remaining danger around the airport. We still believe there are credible threats. In fact, I'd say specific credible threats. This after 13 U.S. service members and at least 170 Afghans were killed in Thursday's suicide blast. You, know, you have tens of thousands of people cramming in from every angle at the same time this desperate pressure to get you know the American citizens and others out 
Um, so it was really, truly a recipe for disaster. The Taliban now tightening security around the airport, adding more checkpoints, trying to keep crowds away. Some fighters took to beating people back one by one, telling them to go home and stay away from the infidels. The airport's Abbey Gate now closed, leaving the once-packed streets around the airport eerily quiet. Inside the airport, the evacuations not stopping. Nearly 13,000 people flown out in the last 24 hours, more than 300 of them Americans, the White House says. An estimated 5,000 remain inside the airport, still awaiting their turn to leave. With the U.S. deadline to cease all operations in Afghanistan just days away, it's unclear just how many Americans remain inside the country. But the White House says they are talking to 500 who want to leave. As for the Americans who don't make it out before the end of the month... The U.S. government will pursue a variety of, uh, of ways to help uh, any uh, Americans who want to get out after our military presence at the airport has ended. But some U.S. allies, including Spain, Sweden and Italy, announcing they've ended operations. And for desperate Afghans likely to be left behind, life under renewed Taliban rule is now joined with the fear of more terror attacks. And the fact, Jake, that ISIS-K can hit uh, 13 U.S. servicemen, more than 100 Afghan civilians, also Taliban fighters, raises a lot of questions about the security threat that this group and other like it uh, pose going forward. You remember that one of the central issues that this whole withdrawal was predicated on was the firm commitment from the Taliban that Afghanistan would never again become a safe haven for terrorists. And so the very real question looking forward is, is the Taliban going to be capable of containing groups like ISIS-K or could they potentially, and no one thinks this is going to happen in the near-term future, but could they potentially in five years perhaps begin to pose a much greater global threat? Jake? Yeah, and Clarissa, I mean, yesterday on this show, the former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, um, Crocker, said that the problem isn't necessarily that the Taliban control Afghanistan right now, it's that no one controls Afghanistan. Absolutely. And this is what you need to keep in mind. People assume that the Taliban and ISIS, that they're all friendly on some level. They're not. They're enemies. And ISIS very much wants to hit the Taliban where it hurts, which means that the Taliban is trying to put out multiple fires all at once. Let's also remember that they've only been back in governance uh, for barely over a week now. This is a tremendous amount for them to be doing on their own. And of course, as the U.S. withdraws, it just will not have the same level of eyes and ears on the ground in order to meet the threat posed by groups like ISIS-K, Al-Qaeda, and there are others as well, Jake. All right, Clarissa Ward, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN's Phil Mattingly. He's live outside the White House. And Phil, you asked uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki not long ago about the continued U.S. government coordination with the Taliban. Uh, What did she have to say? 
Basically that it was a necessity, Jake. That was her exact word that she utilized to basically underscore why the U.S. is so coordinated, so tightly wound with Taliban officials, Taliban military leaders, as they attempt to evacuate the last Americans and thousands of Afghan uh, allies who the Americans are trying to get out an open question as to whether that actually occurs. I asked Jen Psaki that question because we've heard from both Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill, particularly in the wake of the attack yesterday, given the Taliban is responsible for many, if not all, of the checkpoints outside of the airport in Kabul's perimeter. Uh, they're concerned, they're unsettled uh, about the range of cooperation and where there was clearly a break. And I asked Jen Psaki whether or not this was the best of bad options or the only option for American officials as they looked at the reality on the ground. And she said probably both. And that's where things stand right now. Now, the White House makes clear they have been able over the course of the last 13 days to evacuate more than 100,000 individuals, more than 5,000 Americans, thousands of Afghans. Uh, but we have heard many stories uh, about those who have not been able to get through checkpoints, particularly those uh, of Afghan origin, and obviously very serious concerns about the fact that ISIS-K individuals were able to get past the checkpoint and that close to the airport. Obviously, real concerns that are going to continue in the days ahead. Well, speaking of those concerns, what is the White House saying about the fact that uh, the president's national security team has warned him that another terrorist attack in Kabul is likely? That it's acute, that it's ongoing, the threat is very, very real, and probably to put it in a more blunt manner, that the president was informed by his national security team, this is by far the most dangerous part of the operation, not just because of the terror threat, which a lot of officials have told me they have very real, very specific intelligence that is leading them to make a very public statement, which you know well, Jake, is not something intelligence officials or administrations tend to do, talking about an imminent attack in the way they are in a public manner right now. But because of where things stand right now and because of the military starting to pull out as they're trying to evacuate more people, this is an extraordinarily complex time and also an extraordinarily dangerous time. All right, Phil Mattingly at the White House, thank you. Joining us now, the top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Congressman Michael McCall of Texas. Congressman, you think that the U.S. should stay in Afghanistan until, at least until all Americans and Afghan allies who are special immigrant visa applicants are evacuated um, I'm sure many Americans look at yesterday's terrorist attack, however, one Marine, I mean, 11 Marines killed, one Navy corpsman killed, one soldier killed, and say, I don't want any more American service members killed in this 20-year war. What do you say to them? Well, it didn't have to happen. As you know, you know, talked about this. Uh, the planning was, was so bad. You talk about Ambassador Crocker. We uh, did an op-ed in the New York Times Asking, advising the administration exactly what to do. Start evacuating the Americans months before this time. Get our Afghan partners and interpreters out of there. Establish an ISR capability close to Afghanistan. And they did none of this. So now we're down to the 11th hour. It is a crisis. The ISIS-K threat is very real. Um, and they're the worst of the worst. A lot of them came out of the prisons. Uh, Corazon, the K stands for that. I think you will see another attack. I think our goal right now, all we can hope for the best, Jake, is to get every American we can out of Afghanistan by August 31st. The airport is not even, the gates are closed right now. And the only way we can get Americans out is uh, McKenzie, General McKenzie told me they're running JSOC, Joint Special Operation um, Command uh, units, to, to get these Americans and get them into the airport. Uh, mostly by helicopter and by air. At, with respect to the interpreters, you know, I've talked a long time about, I believe their fate is now, um, un, or their fate is, is doomed. 
in fact, they were not let in the Taliban checkpoints and perimeters for a while. Mm-hmm. They've been mistreated. And I, I think their fate now is certain. And that is, um, that is uh, they say no one left behind. Well, we left them behind. One of the problems, as you know, when it comes to getting these planes full of Afghans uh, out of Kabul and other parts of Afghanistan is not a lot of countries want to take them in. I mean, the United States is accepting. uh, Canada is accepting. Some of the uh, United States allies in the Middle East, uh, Qatar and UAE and others, have talked about uh, taking some in, but they usually limit it. Um, There was talk of Tajikistan. There was talk uh, of other locations. Um, Albania has been taking some people in, but even European leaders are pushing back, saying don't send people to Albania because they'll just end up in Europe. Doesn't the rest of the world, all the people, all the other foreign countries that are that are tut-tutting at the United States right now, don't they need to, to step up and accept some of these Afghan refugees? Of course, they share the burden. And our NATO allies, you know, I got a classified briefing, and what I can say is that at the highest levels that we have 24 countries that are willing to take these uh, a- Afghan partners uh, who can be fully vetted. Uh, and, um, you know, that's we all share this burden. But for the people that we had a moral obligation to, we said that we would protect them. And now we're turning our backs on them and their fate is certain. It's execution by the Taliban. You know, for the ones we can get out and have uh, gotten out of there, Of course. And it's not just the United States that bears the burden of all these Afghan partners. All of our allies uh, are standing up to plate, is my understanding. Um, But what I worry about the most, Jake, are the ones that, uh, you know, even before this terror attack by ISIS-K, I heard numerous stories on the ground of the Taliban ripping papers, destroying cell phones, uh, turning them away from the perimeter as the American citizens were moving in. And I I think, unfortunately, their fate is clear. Um, And we're going to see this out. You've seen the horrible videos uh, that came out from the terror attack. And I think you're going to see even more of the Afghan um, allies of ours who are left uh, in that country. Congressman, beyond the report that we saw in Politico and some other places that U.S. officials in Kabul gave the Taliban, with whom the U.S. is is trying to coordinate the evacuations, gave, gave them a list of American citizens, green card holders, and these SIV applicants. Um, We've seen this report. Biden was asked about about it. Uh, He didn't deny it. Others in the administration have been asked about it, did not deny it. Are you aware of this happening? What do you know about the story? Yeah, um, and it's going to break more, but I can tell you we were. We have to, unfortunately, because we didn't get the American citizens out previously. Why would the military leave before our American citizens? Seems to me that was backwards. You want to get the American citizens out first, and then the military and diplomats. Well, leave if I if out. I can just jump in for one second, uh, Congressman, I apologize, mm-hmm. but just one of the things that yeah. we hear from the administration <clears throat> as a response is the State Department has been out there saying we warned American citizens to leave in this warning on this date, and this warning on this date, and this warning on this date. That's how they are responding, saying we have been trying to tell people to leave. Uh, The situation got dire so fast that I'm sure American citizens in Afghanistan had no idea how fast it would would happen. We know our intelligence community warned since May uh, this administration what would happen 
I think this president ignored his own generals, top generals, and his own intelligence community about how rapidly the deterioration was going to happen. And now we're stuck in this really bad situation, um, and we have to get every American uh, out of there. Um, we just can't leave them behind in enemy territory. All right, Congressman Michael McCall of Texas, thank you so much for your time. As always, good to see you. Next, what happens if Thanks, Americans Jay. and Afghan allies are left behind after the August 31st deadline? We're going to talk to our experts next. Plus, here in the U.S., running out of staff, running out of beds, running out of space in the morgue, the dramatic COVID surge again ahead. In our world lead with Biden's August 31st deadline just days away, the question remains, what's going to happen to any Americans and Afghans with U.S. visas who are still stranded in Afghanistan after Tuesday? According to President Biden, they may have to rely on the Taliban. There are, will be, I believe, numerous opportunities to continue to provide access for additional persons to get out of Afghanistan, either through means that we provide and or are provided through in cooperation with the Taliban. CNN Global Affairs Analyst Susan Glasser and former CIA operative Bob Baer join us now. Susan, uh, the White House says that they have to work with the Taliban. It's the only option they have. Is it possible to trust them with this security and evacuation uh, efforts uh, that's that's coming. Well, I guess the question isn't so much trust, but what you know what they will deliver on, uh, and what have they delivered on so far? Remember, it was the Trump administration who negotiated a deal with the Taliban back in February of 2020. They didn't meet many of the conditions, uh, and yet, nonetheless. Uh, the U.S. under Trump and then under Biden continue to withdraw forces. So, you know, that's one key question is, regardless of what they agree to, what will they deliver on? Uh, Biden said yesterday he didn't trust anybody, uh, but had no choice but to work with the Taliban. Remember, when they were in power in Afghanistan uh, before 9-11, there were only three countries in the world that recognized their government. And that definitely did not include the United States. Bob, uh, one of the things that is going on that we don't really talk about much for obvious reasons is there are other efforts going on to rescue Americans and Afghan allies, but especially American citizens. Um, do you think that one of the options that President Biden will consider uh, going forward after August 31st is just sending a special ops team in and rescuing people? Uh, Jake, no way. Uh, it's too dangerous. Uh, you'd have to put too many people on the ground you're going to have to put almost a regiment to, to carry out one of these with all the surveillance. You, you just can't do it. You cannot operate in Kabul right now, and neither can the CIA. Susan, take a listen to former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta during the Obama years, his predictions for the U.S. going forward in Afghanistan. Bottom line is that uh, our work is not done in Afghanistan. We're going to have to go back in to get ISIS. We're probably going to go have to go back in uh, when al-Qaeda resurrects itself. I understand that we're trying to get our troops out of there, but the bottom line is we can leave a battlefield, but we can't leave the war on terrorism, which still is a threat to our security. 
I assume when he talks about, Susan, going back in, he means individual counter-terrorist strike teams, whether Delta Force or Navy SEALs or whatever. But do you agree that the U.S. will have to go back in in all likelihood? Well, you know, Jake, even President Biden, when he announced that he was making the decision to withdraw the remaining U.S. forces back in April, even Biden said we will continue to maintain essentially a counterterrorism focused mission around Afghanistan. He said that the goal was to uh, negotiate with uh, countries in the region to set up new bases from which counterterrorism missions can be launched. As of the collapse of the government, those negotiations had not been concluded and there were no new agreements for counterterrorism. So one of the questions is, regardless of whether it's you know President Biden's original commitment to maintain counterterrorism capabilities, what capabilities do we have now that the government that was our ally and partner in those capabilities has collapsed so rapidly, it's not at all clear. And so I don't even think that's a new piece of information. My question remains the same, which is, how exactly are they set up to do that, given the fall of the government on which they were relying for some of this? Bob, how does the U.S. keep track of whatever terrorist developments are going on if Afghanistan, in Afghanistan? If, if, we, if we don't have a presence uh, even in the embassy, then we can't necessarily even have spies working for us, can we? No, you can't. It's too hard to do, Jake. You know, you can... You can't beat these people, but you can buy them off. We worked with the Taliban in the in the 90s. We set up the Haqqani network in the 80s. Uh, you just have to put a lot of money and you've got my allies in Afghanistan. That's the nature of the terrain. And there's no other way around it. You cannot set up bases in Pakistan or Tajikistan. They're just not going to let us. Susan Glasser, Bob Bear, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Just in the results from that U.S. intelligence community investigation into how COVID-19 originated. That's next. In our health lead today, for the second day in a row, the number of COVID patients in the in United States hospitals has topped 100,000. We have not seen numbers this high since January. And obviously, this is putting a strain on hospitals nationwide. Also today, a major ruling in Florida over school mask mandates. But as CNN's Nick Watt reports, today's legal decision likely will not be the final say in this growing fight. And these school districts are saying no. A slap to the often unmasked face of Governor Ron DeSantis. A Florida judge just ruled his office cannot outlaw school mask mandates. They simply do not have that authority. Many districts were defying the ban, enforcing mask mandates as nationwide a record number of children are in the hospital with COVID-19. We have seen outbreaks in schools that are occurring now in the context of not following these layered prevention strategies. Like masks. This week, Missouri's attorney general sued a school district over its mask requirement. The lawsuit states the cure should not be worse than the disease. It's not. 1,292 people were reported killed by COVID-19 yesterday. No one reported killed by a mask. In San Antonio, Texas, the school district wants a mask mandate. The governor does not. That state's Supreme Court just backed him. Just outside Austin at a school board meeting this week, this happened. At work, they make me wear this jacket. I hate it. A parent got nearly naked to make a pro-mask mandate point. Here go his pants. It's simple protocol, people. We follow certain rules for a very good reason. Pants for decency, masks for safety. 
Thank you. We appreciate that. Now, Governor Ron DeSantis has called that judge's ruling incoherent, says he's going to appeal immediately. Meanwhile, there are more than 16,000 Floridians in the hospital fighting COVID-19. That's near an all-time high over in Alabama. They have deployed freezer trucks to morgues for the first time. In Texas, they're deploying 2,500 extra workers to hospitals and nursing homes. But there is a ray of sunshine. Here in California, after a Delta-driven surge, officials tell CNN... They are hopeful that cases are now plateauing in some regions. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. I want to bring in CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, a new CDC report out today might underscore the need for masks in schools. An unvaccinated elementary school teacher took off the mask to read to students and ended up infecting nearly half of those in the group. Uh, It's really incredible how easily this virus spreads, especially the Delta variant. Yeah, I mean, and we've said that this virus is very unforgiving. And as we show you the specific story here of what happened, uh, be, be reminded of that. And I will also add that this was back in May of this year when this happened. So, you know, Delta was just a few percent of overall cases at that point. Delta variant, obviously, even much more transmissible. So unvaccinated elementary school teacher in this case, having symptoms comes into work, takes off masks to read to the children, and infects 12 of the 22 students there. Eight of 10 students who are sitting closest to her, or, or this person, this, this teacher, became infected as well. Kind of, kind of incredible. And again, that may have even been pre-Delta, Jake. So uh, we, we describe this as unforgiving. We've talked a lot about kids potentially transmitting to adults, but this is very much an example of an adult transmitting to, to kids and, and how quickly and how easily that can happen. Sanjay, the U.S. intelligence community is back today with its report ordered by President Biden on the origins of COVID. Their assessment has been deemed inconclusive. Officials are divided over the lab leak theory or whether maybe the virus originated with an animal. The biological window, we should point out, to learn what might be happening, what happened, that window might be closing. Yeah, I mean, what they mean by the fact that the window is closing is if there were animals that, uh, you know, may have been intermediary animals, they may no longer be available for study. The blood work of lab workers who may have had antibodies to this virus, those blood samples may no longer be available. So that's where the window is closing. But you're right. I mean, I think most people in the scientific community didn't think that they'd have a conclusion within 90 days. It took years to figure out the origins of SARS, for example, back in 2003. So that 90-day that, that you know, sort of time period was pretty short. What I think the most important thing that came out of this this report was the fact that the idea that this virus was bioengineered in some way, that possibility seems to have really been eliminated. But still, as you point out, Jake, lab leak versus just simple natural origin of animal to human, they say they have low evidence to really, you know, conclusively rule in either one of those. I want to ask you about this uh, drug that some people are taking for COVID treatment. Um, A lot of people in conservative media uh, have been talking about it and and advocating for it. Take a listen. We know that our FDA has in many ways failed us by not allowing for the use of ivermectin. Weinstein discussed the benefits of a drug called ivermectin, which can and is around the world used to treat and prevent the spread of the coronavirus. Ivermectin, what, what do we know about it, Sanjay? 
<laughs> you know, I, we, we don't know much because there's not a lot of data on this. There's been a couple of studies out there that uh, have not really shown benefit. Maybe one study out of Egypt that possibly showed benefit. But even Merck, the manufacturer of ivermectin, says there's, there's not the evidence overall to support the use of this. The FDA says it could be dangerous to use ivermectin either to treat or to prevent COVID. So, you know, these big scientific agencies and even the drug manufacturer have weighed in on this. I think it is worth pointing out the obvious here, Jake, which is that the vaccines have had these huge clinical trials all over the world, tens of thousands of people enrolled, months of follow-up. That's real data. Ivermectin doesn't have that. It just, it boggles the mind why people would say, hey, look, we wanna take ivermectin because we don't trust the vaccines, which have all this data and ivermectin really has none. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Next, we have a look at one of these hospitals in crisis mode, overwhelmed with COVID patients with not enough staff to help. Stay with us. In our health lead, as COVID cases skyrocket, U.S. hospitals are in the grip of the highly contagious Delta variant. In Mississippi, one of the least vaccinated states in the U.S., the healthcare system is in crisis mode. Hospitalizations there are reaching new highs with just a handful of ICU beds still available. CNN's Miguel Marquez goes inside now. He goes inside one overwhelmed hospital in southern Mississippi that is sounding the alarm. Dolly Monceau being moved from the COVID ICU to a regular COVID bed. The 82-year-old thinks she got the virus from a family member. You don't know you're going to get it, and then you get it, and you're sick. And you don't know if you're going to live or die. Unvaccinated, she says she was on the fence about getting vaccinated. Today, her mind is made up. All my family, we weren't going to get the shot, but now we are. All your family? All my family. 57-year-old Ronnie Terrell has been in the hospital for more than two weeks, breathing, still a chore. Also unvaccinated, he just didn't think he needed it. I just never got around to it. I've been healthy for 40 years. I had had a cold in 40 years. He thinks he got the virus at an outside event. Did you think COVID was not a serious illness? Well, I didn't give it that much thought because at the time it wasn't that big a deal, you know, when it first started, you know. And, and what, what's your thought on it now? Uh, it's a big deal. <laughs> Mississippi suffering its biggest spike in cases yet. Hospitalizations more than ever. So many cases so quickly, the trend line nearly vertical. The vast majority of cases, hospitalizations and deaths all among the unvaccinated. I think what's most interesting is the detachment, the complete um, lack of connection in what you see out in the community with what's happening in this house in these hospitals. Pascagoula's Singing River Hospital can't expand COVID capacity fast enough. It's cleared beds to serve more COVID patients but doesn't have the staff to open it. The beds sit empty. It's exhausting both mentally and emotionally. I think the most difficult thing emotionally that we're having to deal with now is what do we do with these people who've been on the ventilator for weeks and weeks and weeks and aren't getting better? It also has a monoclonal antibody treatment site for outpatients who have the virus but don't yet need a hospital bed. Amanda Dunning, 35, was unvaccinated, thinks she got it from a friend while shopping, 
Now she'll get vaccinated as soon as possible. I'm convinced. Please just get you, the vaccine. You've gone, you've gone 180 on <laughs> Absolutely. This. I did a 180. Right. And it's because of getting COVID. Edith Jordan, 64 and unvaccinated, thinks she got the virus at a family event. Okay with an IV drip for an antibody treatment, she still doesn't trust the vaccine. I'm just not trustful of the data. Which data? Mm, I'd rather not say. It was just a personal choice. Vaccine refusal sickening people throughout the South, ripping through South Mississippi. What is COVID doing to your community? It's killing us. It's killing our residents. It's killing our demographics. It's killing the staff emotionally. Um, It's a complete overwhelming situation. Miguel Marquez, CNN, Pascagoula, Mississippi. Miguel Marquez, thank you so much for that report. California's Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, is facing a tough recall battle. What the returned ballots are telling us, that's next. In our politics lead, growing headaches for the major players in the California governor's recall. Let's go through things with CNN's Kyung La. Kyung, because of the horrific terrorist attack uh, in Kabul, Vice President Kamala Harris had to cancel her plans to attend a campaign rally with embattled Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom today. Newsom faces this recall vote in just over two weeks. How much of a problem does this create for him? Well, the last thing that this governor, California Governor Gavin Newsom, wants is to talk about Afghanistan while he's trying to fight for his job, a recall election that is, as you point out, just two weeks away. What he wanted is an enthusiastic, optimistic rally standing beside one of California's favorite daughters among the Democratic base, Kamala Harris. That's an image he wants. He wants to juice the Democratic base. It's something he's just not going to get right now because of her duties as vice president. There's concern in Democratic circles that Democrats just don't care that they're just not that excited. But I want you to take a look at this data, Jake. Um, This is uh, some numbers that we're getting from Political Data Incorporated, early data. It is a Democratic tracking firm with 13% of the ballots returned, again, very early, 55% of those ballots have been returned from Democrats, 23% from Republicans, 22% from independents. It is a reminder that Democrats here, when it comes to voter registration, outnumber Republicans two to one. So this race should be Governor Newsom's to lose, Jake. Now tell us about the latest headaches for Larry Elder. He's the talk radio host uh, who's the front runner in the field of the other candidates, not Newsom, 40 some candidates hoping to replace him. Yeah, 46 candidates who hope to replace him. And Elder is leading that pack. He is a Republican. And this is stemming from a police report that was filed with the LAPD. The LAPD confirming that a domestic violence incident report has been filed with them. They would not detail those allegations. But we have spoken to Elder's fiance. This recent report that was just filed is in regards to an incident from 2015. She says that during their breakup in 2015, that he brandished a weapon she put in the police report that she filed just a few days ago that he pushed her and uh, you know she also says that their relationship in an interview with cnn was volatile that it was abusive Um, but at this point the elder campaign says that these are salacious they are untrue and they want to focus on the recall and trying to replace governor newsom All right, Ken La with the lay of the land in California. Thank you so much. 
President Biden today warned that another terrorist attack in Kabul is likely the latest on what could be the most dangerous stage of this mission at the Kabul airport. That's ahead. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.